Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin has six lines to fit your style and financing to fit any budget. Through November 30th, choose 12 months, no payments and no interest, plus 20% off installation. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Mike Spaulding, before you leave. So, my question to you is, 8 o'clock this morning, were you online getting ready to buy up to 200 shares of Green Bay Packers stock at $300 a share. I can't say I was, Jeff. You can't cannot, say I was. All right. No. How about for the balance of the morning? Were you online waiting there to do that? <laughs> no, I was I was not. You I'm not were. as hard on people who buy them, though, as, as others I've seen today. Well, I'm not necessarily hard. I'm just saying that you, there are certain indications of God's way of telling you that you have too much money, as I frequently <laughs> say. And to me, um, again, buying... Uh, buying a shirt now for people who don't know the Packers are for the third time I think they did it first in 1997 and then in, in modern times at least 1997 it was $200 a share in 2011 they sold stock for $250 yep. a share this time it's 300 bucks a share you you can buy up to 200 shares <clears throat> now these the shares are not like typical stock because you cannot sell them you cannot redeem them, so you are essentially just making a, do- a donation to the Green Bay Packers, who apparently don't have enough money. And <laughs> you smile. Well, it, it's okay. And and then um, they, they don't pay dividends, so they're there. You absolutely get nothing out of this other than the fact that you get a certificate to put up on your wall of your man cave, which. I, I mean, I, I understand if you've got, a, like I said, a Reggie White signed jersey and you got a Brett Favre signed jersey and an Aaron Rodgers signed jersey and you want to put up a share of Packers stock, I understand the 300 bucks. But what I do not understand, Mike Spaulding, is I, I could see buying one share of stock or maybe if you had three kids and you wanted to give them as Christmas gifts to your three kids, I could buy see buying three shares of stock. Who would buy 200 shares of stock that is essentially worthless. You know how we always say, if there's a warning label on a product, that means someone's tried to do the thing with the product. (laughs) So was there someone out there who tried to buy 350 shares of Packers stock to try and take some minority control? I don't know. (laughs) If, If that was the case... Uh, what do we always say? A fool and his money is soon parted because it, it, right, it, it really, other than being able to vote for the board of directors, um, it really gives you very limited things beyond that. And if you want to support the team, I get it. And again, if you want that, that cool thing that you're going to put up in your rec room, I, I get that. And if it's worth $300 for you, I, I get that as well. I guess it's just, um, I'm with you though, Mike. I, I wasn't online at eight o'clock this morning looking to buy a share of Packers stock. No, I mean, if my dad was like a huge Packers fan or something like that, you I think it would for be a Christmas gift. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as opposed to whatever else I'm going to get him. I think that would be awesome. But, uh, yeah, if you buy, like, 20 shares, you, do you just get one piece of paper? And no, it, I think you get 30. I think you would get 20 certificates. Okay, okay. But, okay, what, what are you going to do, paper your <laughs> okay. line, line every right, floor right, in my house. Right. Wallpaper is a lot cheaper than the $300. But they, they will they will sell a lot of them, and, and that's fine, and people will be supporting the Packers, and we all want to support the Packers. It's just um, I'm with you. I wasn't there at 8 o'clock in the morning saying, okay, I want to spend 300 bucks. There were a lot of people, though, because they sold $10 million worth already today, and that's like 33,000 shares. Says Mark Murphy. That's that was according to Mark Murphy I, at eleven o'clock. This well, morning. that that just shows how how much we love the Green Bay Packers, and that's fine. And if that was your Christmas gift or whatever, that that's fine. Were you? Oh, maybe it was Melissa that said to me yesterday. It said, you know, it's kind of like when you you give the gift and you say, um, here we're going to name a star after somebody. And I actually had somebody 
who did that one year for me. And it was like, hey, we've, we've, we've named a star after you. And I'm like, huh, I give, just take the money and give it to the church or you give it to the food bank or whatever. When you were in Key West last week, you didn't stare up and go, Fran, that's, that's our star. That's baby. the Wagner star right there. You see it. <laughs> no, we, no, we, 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 we did not, but I, it's the thought that ends yeah. up counting. Okay. Speaking of thoughts, let's, let me offer some thoughts about the written house case. And then we're going to open up the phone lines for sort of an electronic town hall. As I said a couple of minutes ago, I was talking to Steve. If you are watching television or listening to the radio or reading something uh, online or whatever, and there's somebody telling you that they know when the jury verdict is going to be is going to come in, just just ignore it because. All jurors, juries proceed in different ways. And this is a case where, it, honestly, if the jury came back early this afternoon, I would not be surprised. If the jury was out three or four days, I would not be surprised. I mean, it just, you never know how jurors are going to perceive different things. And, and as a general rule, somebody asked me today, do, do I, do I, do I trust juries? As a general rule, I think juries tend to get it right. Now, I understand there are exceptions. O.J. Simpson, O.J. Simpson, O.J. Simpson. But in general, I, I do believe, I think the jury system, in general, it, it works. And I don't know that there is a better system that's out there. So let me give you a couple of my thoughts, and then we'll, we'll open up the phone lines for our electronic town hall. One of, I think one of the surprises yesterday was the fact that the judge kicked the gun count. By that, he threw out the gun charge against Rittenhouse um, before the case went to the jury. In this particular situation, and, and actually, people would perceive that to be a victory for Rittenhouse. Maybe, maybe not. Because candidly, if members of the jury, and this is going to be a recurring theme through my remarks, if members of the jury were looking for a compromise sort of verdict, that, that they think that there's self-defense there, but at the same time, they're troubled with the idea that the 17-year-old kid brings an AR-15 into this volatile situation, two people are dead and a third is shot, and, and they just don't want to let him go scot-free, this gun count would have been, and you know, they're not told it's a misdemeanor versus a felony, but this would have been something that you could have said, okay, we're going to find him guilty on this, and then we're going to find him guilty, uh, not guilty of everything else. Here, here's what happened, and, and here's why, in my opinion, the judge was both correct and very, very wrong. The charge is, and I'm looking at the statute right now, 948.6, possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. Okay, part 2A, any person under 18 years of age who or who possesses or goes armed with a dangerous weapon is guilty of a Class A misdemeanor. And a dangerous weapon is you know, defined as a firearm, loaded or unloaded. Okay, so you might say, well, Jeff, okay, that, that, that's, that's pure. It's, it's on his face. 18 years old, he's under 18, he possessed and went armed with a dangerous weapon, he's guilty. What is the issue? Why would the judge toss it? Well, the judge tosses it because the statute has a peculiar element. If you read further down in the statute, there is a provision that says this section applies only to a person under 18 years of age who possesses or is armed with a rifle or a shotgun if the person is in violation of Section 941.28. So you go to 941.28, and that says... 
possession of a short-barreled shotgun or short-barreled rifle. And it says no person, you know, can can possess one of of these. You can't go armed with a sawed-off shotgun or a sawed-off rifle. So you read these two statutes together, and you say, okay, the statute says if you're under 18, you can't be, you can't go armed with a dangerous weapon. But then later on it says, in this case, for rifles or shotguns to apply to this statute, it means that it has to be a short-barreled shotgun. All right? If you read it like that, I, I understand where the judge is coming from. And you say, yeah, this I don't know if that's what the legislature intended. If this was a handgun, this would not apply. But clearly there's a statute that says, all right, you know, short-barreled shotgun. So the judge says, all right, here, here's the deal. You didn't prove that this was a sawed-off shotgun or a sawed-off rifle, because it wasn't. So I don't think this statute applies, so I'm going to kick it. I don't know that the judge is wrong in, in that interpretation. Here's where the judge is very wrong, though, and it's why I think the prosecution has every right to be upset. This motion to throw out this count had been around since the charges were issued. The judge didn't rule on it and didn't rule on it and didn't rule on it. If the judge would have ruled and said, no, I don't think the statute applies and thrown the count out before the jury was picked, the prosecution could have appealed. Now, maybe the judge is right. Maybe the judge is wrong. I tend to think he probably is right. But 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 anyways, if he would have ruled when he should have in pretrial motions, the prosecution would have at least had a chance to go up to a higher court and make their case. The judge didn't make that ruling. In our criminal justice system, you cannot try people twice for the same offense. You might hear the phrase jeopardy attaching. What happens is once a jury is sworn, jeopardy has attached. And that means that somebody cannot be tried again you know, um, for the same set of charges, unless there's a mistrial or something. So once jeopardy attaches, there's really no chance for the prosecution to go back and to to litigate this question about whether this gun law applies. So all the evidence comes in. The judge then says, okay, I've decided I'm now I'm going to throw out the case. I'm going to throw out this particular count. I'm going to say it doesn't apply. Well, the problem is jeopardy is attached, so the prosecution can't appeal this decision. The judge's decision is essentially unreviewable. What I think the judge should have done is the judge should have said, look, I have real questions about whether this count applies or not, but you know what? I'm going to let the jury decide, because if the jury comes back and finds Rittenhouse guilty of this count, the judge always has the ability to throw it out afterwards. The jury's convicted him. The judge could go and say, you know what? I I just don't think the evidence supports this. I don't think the law is sufficient. I'm going to throw it out. And then, you know, the prosecution could have appealed it because the jury had already returned the guilty verdict. Similarly, if the judge had said, I'm going to let this case go to the jury and I'm not going to throw it out, the defense, if Rittenhouse was convicted, would have been able to appeal it. The way the judge did this on this count, though, is he prevented the jury from deciding it. And as a result of that, he has prevented 
the prosecution from appealing this, if you follow that. So he's taken the matter completely and totally out of the hands of the Court of Appeals, and he's not even given the jury a chance to decide it. I just, it's not so much that I think the judge is necessarily wrong in his decision, but I believe he's wrong in the way he went about it because he did it in a fashion that has denied the prosecution the right to get a review from a higher court to say, you know, judge, you, you might be wrong about this. And and that's that's where I think the prosecution has a right to have an issue. And as I said just a minute ago, interesting, the irony of this is if you have a jury who might be trying to find a compromise, you know, they they want to they want to acquit him on on the big counts, but they still don't let him want to just let him walk. This this misdemeanor gun count would have been that kind of compromise verdict. But now that is off the table. Okay, let me take a quick break. When I come back, I want to share some thoughts with you about where the case is now, the closing arguments, and then we're going to open up the phone line. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. If, and I say if, Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted, I I think there's going to be some things that you point to, including, I think, a decision, a fundamentally flawed decision that the prosecutors made in the beginning of of this case. I think that they, they had... They had an image of what this is, and their image of Kyle Rittenhouse is was a, a self-styled vigilante with white supremacist tendencies who who came to Kenosha looking to looking to kill people, and, and and that's that's the theory that they developed, and even though as it turned out, I don't think the evidence supported that, they continue to maintain that argument. I mean, during during the closing arguments yesterday, I'm listening to the prosecutors refer to Rittenhouse as an active shooter. And and that's just, and I'm thinking, that's just not the case. To me, an active shooter is the guy that walks into the, the shopping mall with a gun and starts indiscriminately shooting people one after another. That That's that whatever you think about Rittenhouse and what happened, that's that's not what I would describe as an active shooting situation. So they're trying to portray this as a guy who came looking for trouble, came looking to kill people, and you know then is trying to use self defense as a way of getting him out of that. I don't think that's what the evidence showed, and I think by proceeding under that theory, they they hurt themselves a lot. Look here, here's what I think objectively happened in this case. You've got a 17-year-old kid who he's watching TV, just like a lot of people. There's all this destruction. There's the rioting. There's the chaos the first two nights. He goes down there with some buddies. He hooks up with some pals, and then they decide, okay, well, you know, we're we're going to do what the government's not going to be doing. We're going to go down there, and we're going to protect certain buildings. Okay, that's so that's what we're going to do. I don't think he went down there looking to shoot people or anything like that, and certainly there's no evidence of that. So he's down there. He's in the situation. He probably shouldn't be there, and he shouldn't have a gun. All right, we, we all, I think most of us could probably agree, 17-year-old in this situation with a gun is a bad idea. But that doesn't mean he's, he's there with the intent of killing people or anything like that. The, the evening is chaotic. You watch these various videos, and this is one of the things that was really, I guess, 
instructional for me during the course of the trial is how much just chaos that, that there was. You've got all of these people that are down there who, who just none of whom have any business there, whether they're to guard the business or whatever. You got people that are throwing rocks at each other. You got people that are dancing around. It's the scene. You got people that are screaming obscenities at each other. It's this very, very volatile situation that, that's there. So you have the 17 year old kid who, in my opinion, quickly gets over his head. He gets separated from, you know, the people that he's with. You've got the first victim, I'll say victim, this Joseph Rosenbaum, who is, okay, just out of the mental hospital, who's clearly agitated, who's screaming obscenities and using bad language and trying to provoke things. He's yelling at different people, including Rittenhouse. He's threatening to kill him. So you've got, okay, this, this kid that is now over his head. He's in this situation with somebody who has been an aggressor all night. No, he's not armed, but he's threatening to kill him. He's threatening to do all this stuff. The kid gets separated from his group. He is then chased by this Rosenbaum character who's been screaming and threatening. Rosenbaum lunges for the gun. I think that's objectively what happens. And and Rittenhouse, you know, in in a matter of really an instant, fires a couple shots and kills him. All right. That's that's kind of the background of this. Was this somebody? Was there testimony that said he set out to kill Rosenbaum? No, he he did it in the spur of the moment thing because Rosenbaum was threatening him and was chasing him. All right. So you have that situation. Then the kid runs. He's trying to get away. It's not like he's shooting everybody else. You have somebody that comes up and hits him with a skateboard, knocks him on the ground. You then have the other guy who didn't testify at the trial, who they call what, you know, dropkick guy or whatever, who's trying to kick Rittenhouse in the face. So he's on his on the ground. He's being attacked by these people. He fires rounds and he ends up hitting and killing one. You've got the other guy who's approaching him, who's got a gun. Who that he's not supposed to have. He's carrying a gun. He's brandishing the gun. Rittenhouse shoots him. And then, you know, Rittenhouse ends up running away, tries to turn himself into the police who who want no part of this. Get away. We're, we'll, we'll pepper spray you because they're already, you know, responding to the shots fired thing. It, it's just a chaotic situation with a kid who shouldn't have been there, quickly got over his head. But the prosecution is trying to portray him as some, you know, serial killer with white supremacist tendencies. And and that's not what the evidence shows. So, I mean, I think they were basing their whole case on what was a flawed theory to begin with. And if if he is, in fact, acquitted. Um, this this would be, I think, a reflection of just a, a bad philosophy and some significant overcharging. And, and maybe if they had been more prudent in trying, once they started figuring out this, figuring out what the evidence was, and if they had been more prudent in trying to issue charges, it, the case might have gone a lot better for them. And again, they they can still get a conviction. But I think the prosecution just proceeded from a very, very flawed perspective from the beginning of this case, which is not to say that there's not going to be jurors that are going to be troubled by this. And I I fully understand it because people are going to look at this and say, okay, we understand the self-defense argument. We understand he's being chased and we understand these people, uh, you know, kind of attacked him and tried to disarm him after he shot somebody. But at the same time, 
We're uncomfortable with the fact that you've got a 17-year-old with an AR-15 who has put himself in this volatile situation. You've got two people who are dead. You've got a third person who, who was shot. And we're uncomfortable just completely and totally saying nothing to see here. You get to walk away. So that's going to be what I think really is going to be the balance that the jury is going to have to deal with. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Those are some of my initial thoughts on the matter. The case is now with the jury. I know some of you have watched hours of this trial testimony. Some of you have read reams and reams of stories about it. Others might have only heard some few descriptions. What do you think is going to happen and what should happen? Your thoughts before the jury returns its verdict in the Rittenhouse case. 855-616-1620. We'll discuss in a couple minutes. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Our, our text line is just blown up, and it's sort of interesting to me because people's opinions are all over the map. From this is a guy who this is a kid who brought a gun across state lines, and, which isn't true, but he, the gun was always here, who went down there and he, he was looking to shoot people to, oh, my gosh, what an innocent victim. And, you know, he was uh, uh, the mob tried to get him all over the map. I, I will. I'll, I'll read a bunch of them just because it's interesting to me how differently people look at the same set of facts. But right now, let's take some phone calls. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think should happen in the Rittenhouse case. Let's start with Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, uh, first of all, I'm disturbed when the uh, yesterday when the judge kicked the uh, gun charge. The fact is, is that uh, I don't think uh, in any case that uh, in Wisconsin that 15, 16, 7 year old kids should be walking around with AR-15s, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and so uh, I think that sets a bad precedent in this state. But, and also, uh, my point is, is doesn't it uh, also affect the individual who gave uh, Rittenhouse the gun? He's facing some charges, and uh, doesn't that affect the charges that uh, uh, he's going to be facing? Yeah, I, I you if, know, if it was illegal uh, to give him the gun. Yeah, I, you know, I'd, I'd have to sit down, Vincent, before I answer that, and just actually look at the statute that he's charged under. So I'll, let me pass on that one, one way or the other. But what do you think the verdict's going to be here? I think he's going to be acquitted on all counts. All counts. I think. I, I, I think at least. They, I think he should be convicted of some misdemeanors. I think the fact is, is that uh, uh, the circumstances was he shouldn't have been there. I, I, maybe the other one shouldn't have been there. I don't know what they, that the other people there were for. Right. Uh, walking around with guns and everything else. They had their own agenda. They weren't really concerned about Blake uh, or what happened to Blake. Right. So, but they had their own agenda. But the fact is, is that uh, I don't think. Uh, a seven-year-old kid should be walking around with, first with AR-15. It, it it just spells trouble, and that's what happened. And so uh, I think that two people are dead, and I think he should be re- some way responsible for that. You know, and I think see, I think there's going to be a lot of people in the jury room who are going to feel exactly that same way, but at the same time, we're going to be looking at the way this case has been charged and the way that's presented, and saying, look, we we think there's something wrong here. 
he should have been down there. But at the same time, if you look at the facts, and this is what we're told about self-defense, and yes, Rosenbaum was chasing him and was grabbing for the gun, and then the other guys did this. It's just, it's an unfortunate situation all around, because I think there's a lot of people who agree, and and blunt, blunt me into that case, who are very uncomfortable with Rittenhouse putting himself in this situation. But you look at the elements of the crimes, and and it's a case that, to me, screams reasonable doubt. Because keep in mind, again, it's the state, you know, that has the burden of proving a case beyond a reasonable mm-hmm. doubt. Um, no, thanks for the call. A couple, couple people are saying, you know, can the family sue Rittenhouse for wrongful death? And, and the answer to that is, is yes. The problem is that... As I always say, and I remember one of my, my law school mentors, the late great Jim Giardi, always saying we can sue anybody for anything. But, you know, the, the question is, can you collect stuff? So, yes, could, could you sue him for wrongful death? Could the surviving family? Sure, they, they could. But, you know, okay, so, and, and that's a different burden of proof. That's just, you know, a more likely than not, a preponderance of the evidence instead of beyond a reasonable doubt. But so you get a judgment. You know, how, how are you going to be able to collect it? You get a $5 million judgment. I doubt Kyle Rittenhouse has $5 million in his pocket. But that's that's a question for another day. 855-616-1620. What do you think is going to happen? What should happen? Bob in Greenfield. Hi, Bob. You're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Um, I think he'll be acquitted. And originally, when this case was first developing, I thought he should be convicted of something. But after I watched the evidence, I decided that it, it was self-defense, you know. Mm-hmm. he's too He was too young, and maybe if he had more life experience, he would have handled things better. And as far as the judge throwing out the, um, the gun charge, I think that was amended so kids could go out with hunting rifles when they're 15 years old yeah. or something. I, I, I think the judge... He uh, did a disservice to the law by not following what you said, you know, not giving the jury a chance or. Right. I I would have. Right. I I would have given. I would have presented the if I was the judge and I wanted to kick that count, I would have either done it way before trial. So the prosecution could appeal or I would have sent I would have sent that charge to the jury. Let them deliberate. If they convict Rittenhouse, well, you, you can always throw it out then, or the defense can appeal. You know, But the way he did it has prevented any sort of review. So I don't know if he's right or wrong, but nobody's ever going to know because we're not going to get a chance to get that count up to a higher a court. Yeah, I, I just think it's such a bad precedent that you're going to have um, people able to go out with long rifles, uh, and and be militia, I, I mean, yeah. In, in the underage, or you know, they want to let kids have guns. It's do, do, do you it's, think that that's going to be? Do you think let Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that there is an acquittal here on on, on the charges. Do you think that people are going to see that as? Uh, sort of a, a green light to go and and show up armed at, at these protests to you know respond to people who might be engaging in rioting. Do you think it's going to open the door for more of that? I think so. It's been happening all over the country. Um, it, it happened in uh, Michigan, um, down in the uh, southeast. It happened where people were showing up with weapons. Uh, yeah. I, I think there's just going to be more. I think it is kind of a well, I mean, it's it's a kind of a, a precedent. It's probably a green light, but I mean, mm-hmm. I think it was going to happen anyway. 
Yeah. No, thanks. For, I, again, I, I, you know, and maybe we'll, we'll get into that more. Matter of fact, that's something I'd probably like to talk about once we, we get a verdict as to what it means moving forward. Will this embolden people to, you know, show up, um, in response to protesters? Or is this just kind of a, a one off sort of thing that's a unique set of circumstances that ended up th- happening? And, um, and I, I don't. I don't guess I don't know the answer to that. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Scott in South Milwaukee. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for taking my sure. phone call. Sure. What do you think? No, no. Just on a. Just, yeah, yeah. I mean, I come down in a camp that like I, whatever that I believe that it's either going to be a hung jury or an acquittal. I don't see any way that there's going to be a conviction here. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I I 100% agree with your with your assessment. And I believe that there's going to be jurors in the in the in the deliberation room who are going to stick who are going to stick to their guns, whatever that that we just can't let him let this kid whatever walk what whatever walk walk away here, Scott Scott free. Mm-hmm. And then on the point later like, so that I think that Vincent made when your other callers, the guy who purchased the gun, that Dominic Black guy, again this this came out in the testimony, right. whatever is that he is he is facing charges in January, yeah. whatever for per, for a straw purchase of the gun. And also the the people who own the car source, they're also facing charges as well for for their for their conduct. Yeah, so thanks. Like, yeah, I mean, I know he's facing charges. Thanks. For, Vincent's question was: it, it does the fact that he was legally able? If if the judges decide he was legally able to possess the gun, does that affect the underlying charge of of buying the gun? I, I guess. I, that's why I said I want to look at the statute. If if he was a complete straw purchaser and and he bought the gun for someone else, knowing he couldn't legally own it, that would be the crime. But again, I I, I don't know if if you said it wasn't a crime for him to own the gun, could it then be a crime for somebody else to purchase it? That that's the the legal question this raises. And I off the top of my head, without sitting down looking at the statute, I I don't have a definitive opinion. Terry on the South Side. Terry, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Good morning. Good. What do you good think? Afternoon. Good afternoon to you, sir. How do you think yeah. this is going to turn out, and what do you think should be the result? Yeah, I think that it's, you know, I, I think you and I spoke about a week ago about this, and I watched the trial, and I watched the videos, and I think I just don't see how you can have video of people chasing a guy with a gun, and then even the prosecution's witness said that he feared for the kid's life, and then, you know, yeah. and then the kid shoots people. Um, I think that the prosecutor charges this based upon the media response and not the evidence mm-hmm. so they overcharged it and then i think once they got into the courtroom they the evidence just didn't match the theory that they had because it was based they charged it based upon the response of, of people in the media and then they came up with an elaborate theory about you know what they think self-defense laws were they basically attacked the law of self-defense mm-hmm. and and tried to twist that to make it seem like he had no real that there was no self-defense saying that, well, if you bring a gun, then yeah. you're the criminal. I mean, I have a CCW. Does that mean that everywhere I go, I'm a criminal? And if I get into a situation, that doesn't make sense. So I think that, you know, based upon the instructions that they gave the jury, I think there is some possibility, it's small, that they could come back guilty on some stuff just based upon that. But I just don't see it. I think the prosecution's witness did more damage than anybody and the video the the right. pictures and videos of the guy pointing the gun at Kyle Rittenhouse's head when he fired and shot him in the arm. Yeah. I just don't see how any reasonable person can see that and say, Oh no, that wasn't self defense. I if someone's trying to take a gun from you, if you try to take a gun from a police officer, they're probably gonna shoot you. Yeah, and, 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 and right, and it's not going to be self-defense. No, thanks, Nicole. I, I agree. I, I thought that was kind of a p- 
peculiar argument for the prosecution to make, the fact that the guy the guy had the gun strapped around his, you know, had his gun strapped on him. Well, obviously, you're you're trying to take it away from him. Let, let me just tell you, I, and again, I, I, I'm trying to think of compromise verdicts, and I'm trying to look at this. One of the counts to look at is count two. Count two is a charge of recklessly endangering, and it's not the three guys who were shot. Count two is the charge that involves the video photographer. I think his name is McGinnis, who testified, and he said, hey, he felt feared for his life because he was kind of in the line of fire. If you were looking for a compromise verdict, you know, you had some jurors that just absolutely felt we, we can't let this guy walk out, you know, without being held accountable for something. That would be the one count that you might want to look at simply because McGinnis, the, the, he didn't do anything. He, he wasn't chasing Kyle Rittenhouse. He wasn't, you know, involved with a skateboard or wearing a gun. He was just kind of in the background. And I'm not, I'm not predicting this is going to be, uh, you know, he's going to be found guilty on that. I'm just saying if you were, if there was jurors looking for a compromise, some people just absolutely dug in that said, look, regardless of self-defense, we, you know, we, we don't think he should be able to not be held accountable for something. That count, too, might be something that you end up uh, looking at. Don in Waukesha. Hi, Don. You're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I, I just can't imagine them coming back with a conviction or an acquittal. Like you so eloquently described, really, the two ways of looking at this. Uh, there's just no way you come up with 12 votes in one direction or the other. Yeah, you you think that there's it. going to be a you think that there's going to be a couple people one way or the other who are just going to dig in and say uh, th- this is clearly yeah. self defense. There's no way in God's green earth we're ever voting to convict. Or a couple people who just say, look, it's it, we're we're not walking out of this jury room letting this kid go after shooting two after killing two people and shooting a third. And it only takes one. Yep. Right. No, you're you're right. No, thanks. You're right. I mean, that's that's something you can't stress enough. The the verdicts have to be unanimous. All twelve people have to agree, yay or or nay. Now, again, keep in mind one of the things, and I keep emphasizing this: the prosecution has the burden of proof. They have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. In other words, they have to convince those twelve people beyond a reasonable doubt that this was not a self-defense case and that that's that's a that's a big burden back with more in just a minute this is jeff wagner on wgmj coming up after the top of the hour i want to open up the phone lines again and we're going to discuss my question about what 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 happens next and by next i mean what happens in the next 24 48 72 hours after a jury the jury returns the verdict we as i was saying earlier though we, we have just been inundated with texts um cindy says jeff what happens if there is a hung jury well if there is a hung jury we do it all again i mean well the the, uh, if there's a hung jury they cannot reach a verdict a decision on some or all of the counts the prosecution then gets a chance to decide do do they want to retry him and in a case like this my guess is they they will say yes. And I've always thought, as a general rule, retrials work to the benefit of the prosecutor because you, you've seen what the defense is, and that they, they've had Rittenhouse testify already. So maybe they can, you know, have more time to figure out. Okay, if he testifies in a new trial, you know, how would we approach him? Would we question him differently? But the answer to the question is: if there is a hung jury, the case 
it's in within the discretion of the prosecution to retry him. And my guess is, in a case like this, they would probably do exactly that. Jeff, are we saying it's okay for minority 17-year-olds possessing AR-15s in the worst neighborhoods in Milwaukee? Question mark. Well, I guess I, I don't. I, I don't think any of us would feel or believe that 17-year-olds, majority, minority, white, black, green, brown, red, whatever, should be in situations like Rittenhouse put himself in carrying guns. I, I, I mean, I think maybe we could all agree on that. And, and maybe here's something that needs to happen clearly. The law on this gun charge, and I, I tried to walk through it at the beginning of this hour. While if I were the judge... I would have let it go to the jury and then made my ruling and let an appeals court rule on it. The, the, the law is admittedly a mess. And so maybe this is one thing that people in the legislature, Republicans, Democrats, and Governor Evers can all agree on. And that is that if we think that 16 and 17-year-olds shouldn't be in possession of AR-15s or rifles outside of a hunting situation or a target shooting situation, maybe what they need to do is get the legislature in session real quick and clear up the law to make it clear. Because, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, I look at the law right now and it's just, it's it's unclear what the legislature intended and the legislature can certainly clear this up by uh, by just you know coming together and saying no we we agree that we don't think it's a good idea for 17 year olds absent the tar- outside of a hunting situation or a target situation we don't think they should be on the streets with shotguns we don't think they should be on the streets with long guns if that is the considered opinion and i think a lot of people would agree with that they could change the law they could do it in instant and then at least moving forward we wouldn't be faced with this situation okay when we come back what happens next stick around Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa, I admit I'm fascinated by this Packers stock sale where you buy shares of stock that are worth nothing. So you, you can buy up to 200 shares, $300 per share. So that's that's $60,000. So it, you could buy $60,000 <laughs> worth of worthless stock should yes. you choose. I, I I wonder if there's anybody out there that has done that. Well, the other thing I was wondering is, do you get an individual share of stock? And, and the way I understand it is no. People are, who've done this are now telling me that for stock that you buy in your name, you, you, just don't get, you get one certificate, but the certificate will say how many shares you own. So what if you want to give it as a gift? Do well, you? I think get... you have to put it in that person's name. Oh, I think okay, you could gotcha. do that. So if I... If I had $300 sitting around that I that I did not know what to do with and I wanted to give you a share of stock, I think I could buy a share of stock in your For name. For me, gotcha. But if I bought 200 shares in my name, I think I would just get one share of stock that says, one one document sure. that says I own 200 okay, shares of stock. Okay, that makes sense then, yeah. It, well, as much as, <laughs> as much as any of this makes sense, right? Right, right, <laughs> right. I, 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 boy, You're Patrick. definitely on the no train. Well, for I this. just no. I'm definitely yes. I'm I'm definitely on the no, on, train. On the no train. And I, I again, I, I understand one share of stock. If you wanted to put it up on your wall, you know, as, as a as a keepsake, I, mm-hmm. I guess I, I get that. I get that. To me, I just as soon have like an autographed jersey or something like that. But but whatever. I get the one share of stock. I, I don't think I understand more shares of stock than that. I guess I do get it giving a gift. 
if I had a friend that was a major Green Bay Packers fan and I had and I wanted to spend three hundred dollars on that person, I guess that could be you know and, and a they novelty. already have all the clothing and they and already they, have and all you, that you don't other want stuff. Want to buy t shirts or things I, like that? I guess that, I could right? see that. Yeah, yeah. I, I get it. I get the the one stock kind of thing, but if people are buying multiple multiple stocks, like I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, but thirty three thousand um, shares sold this morning. Wow. If I do the math, so they, they're but there's still two hundred thousand out there. So if you want to jump in, you just pull <laughs> out that time. credit card and you go to Whalen. Okay, let let us let's talk about a, a different aspect of this Rittenhouse case. And as I said at the start of the show, I, I anybody who predicts when the jury is going to have a verdict is just blowing smoke out of a certain part of their anatomy because because you never know. I I've, and, and take it from somebody who's. As I said, probably tried over a hundred federal criminal trials. I, you, you, I mean, sometimes you think that the jury could be out forever and, and they're back in an hour. And other times you think that, oh, this is a case that's just a dead bang winner and they're going to hang out and, and, and they're out for a couple of days. I, I was telling a story this morning to, to someone. I had a, I had a case, true story. It was, it was a tax case. It was a guy who didn't pay his taxes. And in these cases, they almost never go to trial because it's pretty open and shut. You you either, you, you know, you made the money and you either paid your taxes or you didn't. And this was a guy um, who was, he was what they used to call, maybe they still do, a tax protester. He just didn't believe the government had the right to collect taxes. So he, he just flat out didn't, didn't pay them. All right. So Okay, he, he he goes to trial, and again, it's it's a straightforward case. Believing that you don't have to pay the taxes is not a defense to like a tax fraud case. It's just not. So I will never forget the trial starts, and it was in federal court, and it was front of the the late federal judge, late Terrence Evans, and Terry Evans was a great guy. So it starts. It's the Monday of Thanksgiving week. So okay, coming up to X number of years ago next Monday. And it's really an open and shut case. You know, we, we present the evidence that says he made all this money and he didn't pay taxes. And he gets on the witness stand and he goes into his convoluted thing about how he doesn't believe that dollars are whatever the whatever the weird theory was. But it was, you know, it, it just it wasn't valid. So the case goes to the jury. Now, this the jury gets it on Tuesday afternoon. Now, Thanksgiving is Thursday. And I would say and I'm, it's about six men and six women, and I'm not being sexist when I say this, but let, let's face it, when it comes to Thanksgiving dinner, the women tend to share bird more to, to accept more of the responsibility for the dinner than us guys do. That, that's, that's just the reality. So this is an open and shut case. The jury should be back in an hour. Well, they're not back in an hour. And the deliberations go into Tuesday evening. And, and the judge, I think, is legitimately surprised as well, because, again, th- this isn't a difficult case. And, you know, as he brings the jury out to ask him how they're progressing, you can tell that there's a lot of, I don't use the word pissed off very much on the radio, but you can tell there's pissed off jurors. Because, and they're looking at one woman. And it, it's becoming very, very clear from jury body language that there's one woman who is holding up this entire jury because, well, like we said before, they've got to be unanimous. So they, they go home for the night. They come back Wednesday. Now, Thanksgiving is the next day. So you have all these people, you know, they're going to have relatives descending on their houses and, uh, you know, and, and turkeys to cook and, you know, and to be stuffed and potatoes to be mashed and all this stuff and yams to be candied, all these different things. And this jury is, is and they're just not reaching a verdict and they're not reaching a verdict. And it's very apparent that there's one woman who just, doesn't want to vote to find the guy guilty because she's sympathetic to him. Maybe she doesn't like to pay tax. I don't know, but but she's she's dug in. 
and we get to about 7 or 8 o'clock Wednesday night. Now, Thanksgiving is the next day. The judge brings them back, and, and the jury says they've got a verdict. And the, the judge brings them back out, and you, you can tell. There's 11 really unhappy people, and there's one woman who's there, and she's crying and stuff like that. And so they return a verdict. They find him guilty. And the, then the defense asks to have the jury polled. And that means you ask each individual juror, is this and was this and is this your verdict? And I, I'll never forget because we, we get to, they, they call this woman's name, and there's this long silence. And I remember just watching all the other jurors turn and kind of look at her, like, don't make us go back into that room. And, and real softly, the lady says yes. And, and I, I was, was kind of curious as to how the judge was going to handle it because he didn't say, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Or, Are you sure? He just says, the, you know, she said yes. And that was it. He just blasted ahead and. The, the guy got convicted and everybody got to go home to Thanksgiving. But you just, again, that's that's the situation. I tell the story just to make the point that you never know what a jury is going to do. You have a case that you think is just open and shut, and you get one juror that decides they that they're they're just going to hang out on this, and they're they're going to try to hang up everybody else because of of whatever. So you just never know what the timing is going to be. But sooner or later. This jury is going to return a verdict. And assuming that there is a verdict that's returned, either guilty or not guilty, my best guess is at least you're going to get a a smattering of not guilty verdicts on some of the main counts. Now, maybe as we talked about in the last hour, you know, there'll be compromise verdicts on things. But I'm already watching the TV reports. There is not a large number of people that are outside the courthouse, but the people who are out there look to me to be angry. There, there's some, some people who believe that, um, and they're clearly very agitated, and they're pointing fingers. There's some people holding signs saying this is self-defense, and there's other people who are yelling at them saying it's not. It, it's not a large group. I don't want to overstate this. You know, maybe a dozen, maybe 20 people, depending, who, who've gathered now. But you know, once there is a verdict that once they announce that there's a verdict and the verdict's going to be read at whatever time, you know that more people will will flock to to the courthouse. All right. In anticipation of that, um, let me read a joint statement that was issued by the Kenosha Police Department and the Kenosha County Sheriff's Office, where they say they understand and recognize the anxiety surrounding the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Our departments have worked together and made coordinated efforts over the last year to improve response capabilities to large-scale events. We have also strengthened our existing relationships with state and federal resources. The department have said there is not a current need to set curfews or close roads. Governor Tony Evers, who apparently, I mean, recognizing, I think that he mishandled, you know, the the Jacob Blake protests by not sending enough National Guard people and then limiting what they could do back in August of 2020. He has now said that um, all those who choose to assemble and exercise their First Amendment rights in every community should do so safely and peacefully. Any efforts to sow division and hinder the healing are unwelcome in Kenosha and Wisconsin. Regardless of the outcome in this case, I urge peace in Kenosha and across our state. Please respect the Kenosha community and their efforts to come together. It continued. And Evers has 500 Wisconsin National Guard troops in the area. They're in, I believe, Milwaukee County or Waukesha County where they're they're mustering, but they're close by. All right. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. When 
they announce that the jury has reached a verdict. Is that the time? Would you like to see a large, visible police presence? Or is that an overreaction? Should we wait and see what happens? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Let's say the jury comes back tonight. And I'm not predicting that, but they come back tonight and they say, okay, we're going to have a verdict at 6 o'clock at night. All right, is that the moment where you say, all right, let's mobilize, let's get a lot of police that are in that area because we're worried about things, or does that just make matters worse and maybe antagonize some of the people who um, would, would otherwise... I I don't know, just antagonize them, say, this is the police, it's a police state, they're interfering with our right to protest. How aggressive should be the police be in the beginning? 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's a text. Jeff, how long does a judge um, make a jury deliberate before a hung jury is agreed upon? And the answer is there, there's no set time. Typically, judges allow juries to deliberate as long a, as they want. They'll typically let them go until they say that they can't reach a verdict. Then they typically will bring them in. And in federal court, they, they called it the Allen charge, the judge after the jury says they can't reach a verdict, they're hung, the judge will instruct them, look, you know, go on back, continue to deliberations, try to be open-minded, see if you can reach an agreement, and if they can't, if they come back after that and say they can't reach an agreement, typically you will declare a hung jury. But there's no magic time. It, it, it's it, no magic time at all. And typically you take your cue from the jury. Okay, when there is a verdict, all right, what does the response of authorities need to be? Julie in Kenosha. Julie, your neck of the woods. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thank you so much for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I believe we need to have a presence of the National Guard right away when the verdict is delivered. Um, I think a lot of Kenosha, Kenoshans, uh, my fellow citizens here in our great city, would say that Governor Evers screwed up the first time, mm-hmm. not having that presence there immediately. Mm-hmm. That's really why we're in the problem we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I, I, there's no question. I mean, you talked about the sheriff and the police chief, and they, they acknowledged those first two nights they were overwhelmed. They lost control of the streets, which led to all the destruction, which then created this environment where you had people from the outside who thought they needed to come in to protect buildings from the rioters or looters or whatever. Yeah, it, civilian authorities lost control those first two nights, and... There, there, there's no doubt about it. I, I think so. So you you don't think it would be an overreaction to see a significant police National Guard presence on the street from the beginning? Uh, that's exactly what I think. I think the presence should be there right off the bat. I don't think we're going to have a repeat situation, quite frankly, because it's cold out. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think we're going to have the same type of environment that we had last summer. Yes. But I feel like the presence needs to be there right away. Yeah, Julie. Thank, thanks. I actually, I think you're you're right. I don't think. Look, it, weather is a factor. That that's that's just the truth. And, and she's exactly right. It's a different time of year. I don't think you're going to see as many outsiders. You know, flocking to the the streets, and 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 it's a different. I mean, it's a different 
time. I mean, it was the the Jacob Blake shooting that had kind of set this all off. I, I think, you know, people have had time maybe to cool down. Now, like I say, I, I've been watching some of these TV feeds, and, and I see a handful of people who are just clearly agitated on, on various sides that, that are down there. But so far, it's a small number of people, and it's easily able to be controlled. What you want to make sure happens is that this does not get out of control. So just like Wauwatosa mobilized after the the decision came down to not issue criminal charges against Joseph Mensa. Remember that? And and some people say, oh, this was overkill. We had all these police and we had this National Guard presence. Uh, it, it To me, the response is better safe than sorry. And now, do you need to put all 500 of the National Guard members on the street? Not necessarily, but I think you need a heavy security presence. And, you know, people who might be inclined to engage in misbehavior. I'm not talking about legitimate protests and, you know, gathering in a park and chanting your unhappiness. I'm talking about throwing rocks and setting stuff on fire and things like that and leading to violence. I think there needs to be a a police presence that swiftly deters that. And if you do have that individual that decides, hey, I'm going to chuck the rock or whatever, you need to have enough police that are going to go in and they're going to grab that person and they're going to arrest them and they're going to haul them off. This isn't about stifling legitimate protest. At the same time, it is making sure that you are not outmanned. Now, what happened in Kenosha in August of 2020, I understand. You, you had the Jacob Blake shooting and because we have you know Twitter and you've got all the social media stuff and you have all these people some of whom were looking for trouble not everybody but some of whom were you know people flock there and they can get there quicker than the cops because it's it's just something that happened in the snap and in the blink of an eye this is not one of those situations there's been planning my guess is the kenosha police are going to be prepared my guess is the kenosha um, sheriff's department is going to be prepared my guess is that you have law enforcement from a number of surrounding communities who are ready on a moment's notion a notice to come. And you've got the National Guard that's there. And like I say, I think if it were me, I would deploy at least some members of the National Guard, make sure everybody knows that, you know, there is there is a large law enforcement presence. Because the one thing we saw is this is what happens when civilian authorities lose control of the streets. And, you know, if if there wasn't the looting and the rioting, if civilian authority had been able to control things for the first two nights, then this whole Rittenhouse thing doesn't happen. Then there's no need for people to flock there with the idea that they're going to do what the cops can't do. Uh, you, you don't have buildings that are set on fire. You don't have all the, the damage that, that's done. It's incumbent on civilian authority to keep control. I don't think it's going to be be as bad. I agree completely with Julie. For a variety of reasons, I don't think, even if this is an acquittal on all counts, I'm not predicting that, but even if it is, I don't think you're going to see the mass public response that you did in August of 2020 for a variety of reasons that we can talk about at some other time. But you, you can't let this get out of control. You've got the National Guard that's stationed nearby. You've got the police that are ready. My response would be use them. Let's deter any you know bad behavior. Let's not see a repeat of August 2020 in November of 2021. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I want to revisit something 
I, I mentioned, we, we did a brief discussion of it about a week and a half ago before I went on vacation. And, and the story, it's kind of under the radar, but it hasn't gone away. Uh, the CEO of McDonald's, you know, the Golden Arches, the CEO of the McDonald's company is a guy named Chris Kemzinski. He is under incredible pressure now by a number of activist groups who are calling for him to resign. Are they, and this isn't about, you know, paying their, their workers or benefits or things like this. This is about a text that he sent to the mayor of Chicago. And McDonald's is based in out of Chicago. Um, Oak Brook, I think it is. So this is based on, on a text that he sent. Now, here is the context uh, of this. Chicago is like the murder capital of the world. And it doesn't matter... These murders are just indiscriminate. You might remember this. A couple weeks ago, there was a seven-year-old girl. Her name was Jaslyn Adams. She was shot dead while sitting in a car with her father at a McDonald's drive through And that, that's now the McDonald's connection. What happened was the father, who, by the way, was injured but survived, the father has a long criminal record. He is a major league gangbanger, and he knew that he was a target for gang retaliation. So he's sitting in this McDonald's drive-thru with his seven-year-old daughter, and then you have a number of rival gangbangers who show up. They start shooting indiscriminately into the car. They wound him, but they kill the seven-year-old girl. Okay, so that's that's story number one. Story number two involves 13-year-old Adam Toledo. He's 13 years old. What happens is, 2.30 in the morning, he and a 21-year-old accomplice, who is a repeat gun offender, are out on the streets in Chicago. Did I mention he's 13 years old? It's 2.30 in the morning. And they're apparently both armed, and they are shooting at random moving cars. So a 13-year-old and a 21-year-old, they're on the street at 2.30 in the morning, and they're shooting at cars. Somebody calls the police. All right, the police show up. The kid flees from the cops. He's apparently carrying the gun, and as he's trying to climb over a wall or or something, it's a little bit unclear whether he drops the gun or whatever, but the police shoot him. All right, he's, he's armed. He's arguably in the process of, of dropping the gun, or and the police, I think, want to say he was kind of like turning around, but whatever. He, it, it's a tragic situation, but you've got a kid that's out on the street at 2.30 in the morning who's been involved in either shooting at cars himself or he's with a 21-year-old who's shooting at cars, and then he's got the gun and he's running away from the cops when they show up. And, and it's a bad outcome. It's a tragic outcome. You've got a 13-year-old boy that's dead. You've got a 7-year-old girl that's dead. Okay, so, again, keep in mind that the gang shooting happened at this McDonald's drive through So the CEO of McDonald's is interacting with the mayor of Chicago, and he sends her a text that says, quote, with both. He's talking about both these these situations. The parents failed those kids, which I know is something you can't say. It's even harder to fix. Okay? So that's what he says. With both, the parents failed those kids, which I know is something you can't say. Even harder to fix. All right? This text becomes public. And now he's being called insensitive, terrible, 
How dare you blame the parents for the, these tragedies? Have you no sympathy? Have you no heart? How can you do this? You need to resign. Huge, huge backlash. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, here's the problem. We, in my opinion, we can't even begin to fix a lot of the social problems that we face in this country if we can't discuss them open and honestly. And, and yeah, I don't think the CEO of McDonald's should for, be forced to resign over this. I don't even think he should apologize for this, although he, he has, because that's the world we live in. What he is saying is is the truth. A 13-year-old boy should not be out on the streets of Chicago at 2.30 in the morning shooting at cars and then running from police. That That's just the, the reality. The parents failed him by not keeping him home. The seven-year-old girl is collateral damage. It's a huge tragedy. But why was she shot? Well, she's shot because her father is a gangster who was involved. This was a gangland retaliation, and the people that went out to do the shooting, they were trying to get Dad, and they didn't care who might be around Dad. And I'm not excusing, uh, again, the, the, the people that were responsible for pulling the trigger, but but the reason this seven-year-old girl was put in harm's way and ultimately killed was the fact that she was with her father, who was a gangbanger himself, who had chosen this particular life. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, is it unreasonable to say, as the CEO of McDonald's did, with both, the parents failed those kids? And my answer would be, the parents obviously failed those kids. Doesn't make it less of a tragedy. Doesn't, I think, pour salt into a wound. But it, but it's true. And maybe it's fair to ask parents to kind of maybe look at their in their own hearts and figure out. Okay, let's go back to the Rittenhouse case. You know, maybe that mom shouldn't have let that 17-year-old get into that particular situation because none of this would have happened. Maybe the father of the 7-year-old girl shouldn't have been involved in a life of gangbanging that caused him to be the subject of a gang retaliation. Maybe maybe the kid should have the 13-year-old should have been home where I would argue 13-year-olds are supposed to be on night and night instead of out shooting at cars with a 21-year-old accomplice 8556161620 can we not even discuss this anymore we discuss this is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ So very glad to have you. What's frustrating to me about this is that we we cannot fix our social problems if we can't discuss them because we're afraid of being politically incorrect or we're afraid of offending somebody. And, and so as a result, when we see stuff that is obviously wrong, we, we can't even call them out. Now, there, there's countless times on this program in any given week, and this goes back for the 24 years I've been doing the show, where, where, where people will say, you know, where are the kids? You know, well, where are the parents? You know, what was this kid doing? What was this 13 year old doing in, in that stolen car 
at nine o'clock at night, you know, driving 95 miles an hour. And now the kid is, is dead or in the critical condition in the hospital or whatever. Where were the parents? Well, you can't even apparently ask that question anymore. And the CEO of McDonald's is finding that out. And the two cases we talked about, seven-year-old girl dead in a shootout that happens at a McDonald's drive through because she's in the car with her dad, who is a gang member who was who knew that he was subject to gang retaliation and a bunch of rival gang members show up and they shoot up the car a la like the sunny scene in the in the uh, godfather and and the, the girl gets killed oh, okay we and and we can't even say that the parents failed that that girl of course the parent failed that girl and that, that's just the uncomfortable truth. Same thing is true with that Adam Toledo case. 13-year-old kid, 2.30 in the morning, out with a 21-year-old guy, and they're, they're, they're shooting up the streets of Chicago. The police get called. The kid's got the gun. He runs. The police shoot him. Okay, it's an unfortunate, it's a horrible sort of thing, but what was he doing in that situation in the first place? And can't we say that, that maybe the parents, if they had exercised some more control, maybe that this bad stuff wouldn't have happened? And and if you want to carry that on to the Rittenhouse case, regardless of whether you think this was self-defense or not, couldn't we perhaps all agree that, that maybe if, if the mom or the dad of Kyle Rittenhouse had said, you're 17 years old. This is a volatile situation. You've got nothing good is going to happen if you get yourself into that situation, and especially nothing good is going to happen if you're carrying an AR-15. That's Don't go. Go to the movies. Go, I don't know, go watch TV. Go play video games. But no, you're not going to be allowed to get into this situation because nothing good happens in that situation. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's Marie. Jeff, the McDonald's executive stated the exact truth. Many times these situations are blamed on society, which is so incorrect. Sorry, Hillary. That's my notation. It doesn't take a village. It takes responsible, loving parents to raise children. So step up, parents, and be responsible if you choose to bring people into this world. Honesty hurts, but this is the reality. The parents failed the children. Um, yes. I mean, yeah, that's, that, that's exactly it. Um, if you make kids, to, to, you need to parent your kids. The Rittenhouse situation was avoided if the mom doesn't take the kid to uh, Kenosha. 13-year-old parents doing their job, all is avoided. Yeah, that that's the simple thing. But apparently we can't even discuss this in public anymore. Jeff, I think you're right. The parents failed in all three counts, cases, and yes, it needs to be mentioned. No, the CEO of McDonald's should not be vilified for bringing up an obvious issue. The community needs to realize that they have a responsibility in these Chicago cases, to which absolutely Absolutely. But we can't even say it anymore because, oh, this is going to be insensitive or or, oh, people are going to get upset about it. Well, okay, people should be upset about it. I'm upset about people dying when 13 year olds take stolen cars, drive 90 miles an hour, blow through intersections and hit and kill people. That that to me is the upsetting thing. I'm upset when a 13 year old 
um, is height boosting a car at the hotel right by Mayfair. A woman tries to stop him. The kid pulls her out of a car, drives back and forth over her, kills her, and drives off. Yes, that was a failure on a lot of levels, but it starts with the parents of that 13-year-old who shouldn't have been out on the street in the first place. And if they don't like hearing it, too darn bad. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right. I guess one of the themes here is uncomfortable realities. I have in my hand a story from the local newspaper, the Milwaukee Sentinel, dated October 6th of 2021. All right, stick with me. Why are you reading a story that's five weeks old? Here's the headline. With no solution to Milwaukee's pension problem, 24% of the workforce could be let go in coming years. A quarter of the city of Milwaukee's workforce could be let go between 2023 and 2025 if the anticipated spike in the city's annual pension contribution is not addressed, according to a new report. The reduction of about 1,300 employees would be catastrophic, one of the aldermen says. The 29-page analysis indicate includes a dozen potential options Options for addressing the anticipated jump in the city's annual pension contribution from about 71 million to more than 145 million in 2023. Okay, so just to meet their pension obligations between now and two years from now, they've got to come up with 145 million dollars, and right now it's 71. So you got to come up with with double that. You know, you got to get $145 million because the pension fund is underfunded, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I, I bring this up because this is not the only example of of underfunding. We, we have the stories that we hear about, I don't know, lead, pipes, and water. We have, we're told that we, we can't replace police officers because there's just no money to do that. And the list goes on and on and on. And these are all very, very real concerns that, that are out there. There's simply not enough money in the city of Milwaukee's budget to cover all the needs. And then you've got this huge new nut to crack that, that's going to be the added pension contributions, right? The, the city of Milwaukee hemorrhaging money. That is the premise. So here's the story today. Proposal would give City of Milwaukee employees 12 weeks of paid parental leave. All right. Um, older woman, Marina Dmitrievic, she wants to be mayor. She is probably, I don't want to say the most left-wing, but she might be, what, she's definitely one of the most left-wing members of the Common Council, just like she was one of the most left-wing members of the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors, and just like if she would be elected mayor, she would be one of the most left-wing mayors in the country. All right, City of Milwaukee employees would receive up to 12 weeks of paid parental leave after bringing a new child into their homes. Uh, Dmitrievic frustrated with the lack of action at the federal level because on the federal level they realize they cannot afford this. So she wants uh, paid parental leave. The way it stands now, city employees can take parental leave, but it's either unpaid or the result of cobbling together vacation and sick time. So, for example, if you know that 
you're going to have a baby or your wife is going to have a baby, what you do is you plan ahead and you say, okay, I'm going to save my, I'm going to save my vacation time. I'm going to save my sick time, whatever, and I'm going to use that. Well, Dmitrievic doesn't think you should do that. She thinks every employee, male or female, should get 12 weeks paid family leave courtesy of in this case, the taxpayers of the city of Milwaukee. The new policy would provide full pay to employees when a child is born or when employees adopt, begin fostering a child, or have a stillbirth after 20 weeks of pregnancy. It does not limit leave based on gender, meaning it could apply to both women and men. Um, Dmitrievic says, oh, this could give the city another selling point. The estimates are that 40 general city employees taking 12 weeks of paid leave in a year would cost the city taxpayers about half a million dollars. All right. Um, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, let there, there are people out there who really believe that there is such a thing as a free lunch. And it, you know, it, it's been a reality throughout all of history that there is no such thing as, as a free lunch. Stuff has to get paid for in some particular way. You have the city of Milwaukee, which if, if not broke, it is hanging on by, by vapors. You, you don't have enough money to provide some of the services that need to be done. You don't have enough money to fix the roads. You don't have enough money to, you know, hire the cops that you need to do and do all these other things. Uh, you know, we're not even talking about, you know, figuring out where you're going to get the money to pay for people that are going to drive the snow plows and things like that. So if you say to me, gee, in a perfect world, if you have a child, you know, would it be nice to have your employer give you 12 weeks of paid leave. Well, yeah, that would be that would be a darn nice thing. But that's got to be paid for somehow. So keep in mind if you've got a city employee, for example, that gets that 12 months of paid leave, what that means is you got to find somebody else who's going to be able to do their job as well. So actually, it's probably a lot more than just the salaries of half a million bucks. It's probably a lot more because you're going to have to pay somebody, maybe a temp agency or something, to bring in and do the job that the person's not doing. But but it sounds nice. And, and wouldn't it be great if we gave 12 weeks of paid leave to employees when they adopt kids? Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand stuff in theory, and everything sounds good. But given the fact that there's just flat out no money that's there, can the government, in this case it's the city of Milwaukee, but you can make this argument about other governments, government entities as well, can you... Can you give 12 weeks, essentially three months of paid parental leave to moms or dads when they adopt or when they have kids? 855-616-1620. And if you do have, I don't know, half a million, three quarters of a million, a million dollars of extra dough sitting around, is this the best use of it? My answer would be, of course not. But what do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Let me give you some perspective on, on how out there 
this proposal is by this member of the Common Council, Marina Dmitrievich, who wants to be the, the mayor. Now, Madison, the city of Madison, has a paid parental leave program. And this is the People's Republic of Madison. That leave program provides up to six weeks of paid leave. Six weeks. In Milwaukee, she wants to double it. She wants to go double what they do in Madison. In Madison, about 4.5% of the employees use that option every year, 4.5%. Um, this, this estimate that they're throwing around in Milwaukee, 40, I, I think that's really, really low. If you said to the city employees, and I can, I'm not knocking city employees, but if you said to city employees, hey, you can have 12 weeks off. You know, if you adopt a kid or you, you have that baby and it's not for the mom, it's for the mom or the dad, you have 12 weeks off. You know darn well that it's going to be more than 40 people who are going to take advantage of that. And what does that do for all the other employees that are out there? Maybe the folks that have already had their kids. You're going to have to pick up the slack for all the other employees that are, are taking this. The, the This idea that it's only going to cost half a million dollars is, of course, based on the fact that only 40 people would take this. Well, I, I think that that's, that's naive, but that doesn't factor into the fact the account that you're going to have to either pay overtime then to the existing employees who are going to have to do the job of the people who are gone or the temporary help or, or whatever. Bottom line is, at some point in time, don't you just have to, to say no to this stuff? Here's a text, Jeff. The reality is Milwaukee can't afford the bills it already has. How the heck does she think Milwaukee can afford to give 12 weeks of paid leave? I work at a hospital. And we don't get paid leave unless we have banked our vacation time or our sick leave. Yeah, and that's that's what they do now. You know, you know you're, you're pregnant and you know that you're going to want some time off. Well, you get unpaid time off. You know, that that's under the Family Leave Act, FLMA. So you can have time off and that's fine. But if you want it to be paid time off, yeah, that's what you use your sick leave for. That's what you bank your vacation time for. And that's what you, you plan ahead as opposed to simply saying, well, gee, I want another three months of paid time off at the expense of, you know, my employer. Um, um, that's the deal. Jeff, I went through this when I worked for a different city. I used my vacation time and my sick time. They had a policy where employees could donate their time for medical conditions. And in the handbook, they didn't exclude maternity leave or birth. My doctor approved the medical condition form, but the employer still didn't grant it for me because they said that. I mean, and and that that's a whole different story. But, yeah, you plan ahead. And that's the, the deal. You want to take time off. After you have a baby, I get it. I understand why you'd want to stay home. But this idea of expecting the taxpayers to pick up the tab for that decision that you have made and your coworkers then to have to, you know, cover this, um, I, I think that that's that's where it becomes unreasonable. That's where you kind of, you know, plan ahead and you figure, all right, this is what we're going to have to do. If we're going to um, have this, Jeff, you don't have children and you must hate parents. Of course, they should get 12 weeks paid off. That's sarcasm. When my daughters were born, I took six weeks off unpaid, um, but free from my 401k to cover the expenses that we had when my wife and I were on leave. Yeah, that, that's the idea. Well, you just, you hate parents. You hate children if you don't think that they should get th- parents should get three months off. No, it, it's is it a nice thing? Yeah. 
but can you afford it? And is this the biggest priority thing that's out there? I mean, seriously, if you want to stay home, that's great. I think that's wonderful. Does the employer, in this case, do the taxpayers have an obligation for you to be paid while you stay home? And my answer is no. And if you're going to say, let's give them 12 weeks of parental leave, explain to me where that money is going to come from. Are we going to say to the citizens, the senior citizens on uh, fixed incomes, that you know, you're going to have to pay more in taxes? I mean, where, where is the dough going to come from? Are we going to say, hey, let's get rid of um, a couple extra police officers? Officers, okay, Let, let's explain and figure out where the money is going to come from. And by the way, a number of you are pointing out correctly that, Jeff, you know, they've got the trolley. If Milwaukee can spend all this money on the trolley, obviously there's no shortage of money to spend, to which I admit I don't have a really good response. But just because we've peed all this money away, putting on the, building this, this trolley line, which I predict, by the way, once Tom Barrett leaves for Luxembourg, the impetus behind expanding the trolley and putting more money into that streetcar, I think that's going to kind of all go by by the wayside. That's just sort of my prediction. But, yeah, I acknowledge if you can buy the trolley, you pretty much shouldn't say no to anything. But we shouldn't have bought the trolley in the first place. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Look, here's some of the thinking. Here's a text in this. Jeff. The city of Milwaukee and the state of Wisconsin spends how many millions of dollars in sports venues, lighting up the bridge, etc., but we can't spend, we can't pay for families to spend time together? Question mark. To my response is, but we do pay for families to spend time together. It's called vacation and sick time. I, I mean, again, the, 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 the idea is at what point in time do the taxpayers say enough is enough? Like I say, if you want to have a baby, you want to stay home, Unpaid, no problem. You get to do it. If you want to stay home and be paid, no problem. You use vacation time, and the vacation time that you get in the city of Milwaukee as a general rule is, I think, extremely generous, and you use your accumulated sick time. I mean, that's that's how you approach it. When I worked for the federal government, you could accumulate sick time, and, and that's what I always did. Thankfully, I never you know, was out for any sort of catastrophic length of time, but the idea was you accumulate sick time, you bank the sick time, so if you need it for an event like, say, you know, you, you want to stay home um, after the fact with a child, well, that's that's when you do it. That, that, that's what that is there for, period. But there's this idea that, no, 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 we have to essentially foot the bill for all this type of stuff. And again, I understand it's a nice thing. It's a wonderful thing. But at some point in time, people have to pay for this. So explain to me where the money is going to come from to pay for these different benefits. Are we going to have fewer cops? Are we going to, well, you know, you name it. Are we not going to pay people as much to plow the snow, which means your roads aren't going to get plowed in the winter? Explain to me where the dough is going to come from to do this. Speaking of that, what what. The story about the, the firing of former Chief Alfonso Morales just continues to get worse and worse. Okay, so the Fire and Police Commission violates the, the law and Morales' rights. They, they fire him. Um, they end up having to pay him and his attorneys a total of $627,000 because of the way they went about it. In addition to that, the city attorney's office had hired an outside attorney to help advise them on this Morales case. 
And the the budget for this was $40,000. Okay, that might sound like a lot to you, but I mean, I was in private practice for a while. I understand $40,000, fine. Last summer, though, it became apparent that the law firm was going to exceed that cap. They'd spent more time working on it than they'd originally planned. And so they said, hey, look, we think it's going to cost like another $16,000. The city attorney's office apparently did nothing. They just said, well, go ahead and do this. Keep keep working on the case. So now the bills come due, and they go to the Common Council, and they say, oh, oh by the way, in addition to the six hundred twenty-seven grand, we got to pay Morales and his attorney. Um, we owe... We owe the uh, we owe the attorneys we owe them you know um, not only the forty thousand dollars that we agreed to but we owe them an extra sixteen thousand dollars and we want you to give us the money now members of the common council are saying well wait a second here you know if you knew in June or July that this cap was going to be exploded and you need more money don't you think the responsible thing would have been to come to us and ask permission to to spend that extra money? And apparently members of the city attorney's office say, well, yeah, humana, humana, that would have been the better way, but we just didn't do it. Now we want the money. And I think the Common Council is about to say no to that, which will make an interesting issue with the law firm. But again, this, the whole Morales case, if you want just you know an example, a primer from A to Z as to how to screw up something by a municipality, the Al Morales case is one of those situations. And while I wish the new police chief, Jeff Norman, the best of luck in a very, very difficult situation, you can't tell me that the city wouldn't be better off if Alfonso Morales had been the chief for the last year plus. Okay, when we come back, we'll talk to John McCure, find out what he and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.